Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. to invite us all to do as a church family. I want to invite us, you'll see on page five, we're going to turn to the book of Esther. And some of the boys and girls I know uh, will be able to follow this and read along with mum and dad. The book of Esther, chapter five. And we have a long reading this morning. I'm going to read it in two bits. We're going to read through to the end of chapter seven. Uh, But just for now, before we sing again, I'm going to read to the end of chapter six. So you'll find it on page 413-413 in your Black Bible, or you'll find it just after Nehemiah uh, if you're leafing frantically through your own Bible to find this book that is tucked away in the Old Testament. And really, we've reached an amazing part of the story this morning. After all the the build-up, God's people are facing annihilation. The king has issued a decree that all of God's people are going to be destroyed. And Esther has said, I am going to go and speak to the king. So Esther chapter 5, what will happen now? Let's enjoy this as we read it together. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters. She stood there while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, this was a life or death moment. She could have been killed immediately for coming unbidden into his presence. What happens? She won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? The first time she has been called queen. What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Haman is the man who has issued the decree or or, or sought the decree to get rid of God's people. Let the king and Haman come to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to another feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai, Mordecai the Jew, Mordecai the man that is seeking to save God's people, when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and saw that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. 
And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches. It's such, such a pitiful sight in verse 11. This weak man recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. No one but me. Tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. You feel the hatred in his voice? Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, it's what weak advisors do to weak men, isn't it? Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written, how Mordecai, this is the event in the early chapters of the book of Esther, how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Asherus. the assassination plot against the king that Mordecai had foiled. The king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. The king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Imagine him now rubbing his hands with glee. Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, Let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. Let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to him, And hurry, Take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, begun to fall, if he is one of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him. 
but will surely fall before him. Chapter 6, verse 14. While they were yet talking with him, talking with Haman, the king's eunuchs arrived and they hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, sold to be destroyed, to be killed and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. But our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Asherah said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. The king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. On that day, King Asherus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king. For Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Amen. Sometimes God writes with an acid pen. Sometimes God writes with an acid pen. Did you know that? Do you believe that? What, what kind of book do you think the Bible is as you read it? Might the Bible be the kind of book that bites and cuts and stings? This book of Esther that we've been enjoying over the summer months, Will has been leading our church family through it. The book of Esther is a comical book. We're not reading this book properly if we are not smiling more than we often do in our Bible reading and our sermons. I saw some of you smile, laughing, even as uh, we worked our way through chapter 6. For Esther is a book of brutality, clothed in romance and sexual tension. It's a book that drips with irony and sarcasm. It is structured for punchlines and biting humor. The whole point of the book is the delicious satisfaction of seeing a shrewd politician 
becoming a hapless buffoon hoist by his own petard. And it simply says to us that sometimes, sometimes, God writes with an acid pen. I wonder if you know that just a couple of weeks ago in the, in the United States, some of you will have seen this story. Uh, did you know that thieves broke into a church and they stole over $1 million during the service in America? Now that's bad, of course, isn't it? But do you know where they got the $1 million from in the church? Solely from the jewelry that the pastor was wearing as he was preaching and from what his wife was wearing. As this event went public and they're looking for the thieves and so on, the pastor said this, Why do we have to look poor? If our God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who owns everything, is not poor, why do we have to live poor? Why can't I drive what I want to drive? The problem is not with me. The problem is with how you think. Isn't it grotesque? And doesn't God have a sense of humor? We all know what gallows humor is, don't we? We all know what it is to use laughter and mockery to diffuse fear. We, we all know what it is, don't we, to look back at some of the most tragic events in world history and many years later be able to laugh at the stupidity of what caused them. Esther says to us, sit down, let's read together and let me tell you about a funny thing that happened on the way to the gallows. Friends, this morning and all the way through this book, God is saying to us, There is nothing more laughable, nothing more absurd, nothing so reckless in all the world than to try to hurt the apple of my eye. That's what God is saying in the book of Esther. For if you lay your hand on my people, if you touch my people, you are messing with me. Maybe when the Bible is being delightfully humorous, God is being deadly serious. And some of us is here for us this morning. I want to show us three, three eyebrow-raising strategies of God. I want to show us three ways in which he works in the world, which may not be what we expect. Three things God does here. Number one, speed. Number two, laughter. And number three, silence. Speed, laughter, silence. Number one. Let the slowness of events remind you. Let the slowness of events remind you. There is an astonishing thing here in chapter 5, which is that it has taken all this time for the tension to build and the drama to unfold, and we've finally reached the decisive moment. Mordecai has come to Esther. Esther says, I'm going to go to the king. And then what happens? She waits. Chapter 4, verse 16, I will go. I will go into the king, though it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. Chapter 5, on the third day, she waits. Three days. And then when we get to the third day, we get what? What does she say to the king? She's in his presence. She says, come to my party later on. Okay, we'll wait. We're waiting some more. We get to verse 5. It's all going swimmingly. She's got Haman and the king where she wants them. We think this is the moment where Esther will do what Esther does. 
What does she say? Come to my next party tomorrow. We get to verse 8. We're meant to get to verse 8 of chapter 5. Going out of our minds with the slowness of events. Did you notice that, friends? Do you see this? Some of us in life are so slow ourselves, we didn't notice as we read this. I'm slow. Some of us live by this motto, don't we? Never do today what you can easily put off until tomorrow. But in fact, all of us in a crisis, when we see a problem and a need to be resolved, we want it fixed today, don't we? Now. Why is Esther waiting? We don't know yet. By verse 8, we don't know why she's waiting. In, in fact, we never really discover why she was waiting, why it was the next party and the next party. And in fact, look at verse 9 of chapter 5. While she waits, things get worse. It's amazing. This is the, the point of the story. If she'd given the king what she wanted straight away, verse 9 wouldn't have happened. Verse 9, her delay is the very opportunity for things to worsen. It's not just that the whole nation is going to die, but now this good man Mordecai has a, a terrible fate specially arranged just for him. It's easy to read over it, isn't it? What uh, Haman's wife says, verse 14, let a gallows 50 cubits high. Friends, 50 cubits high is like 75 feet high. A six-story building. This is not normal. It's not how you hanged a man. Esther's delay is leading to a deranged madman getting time together to prepare not just an execution, but a public humiliation of a good and upright man. Oh, the gallows is not good enough for Mordecai. They must be on a hill for all to see. His very name must be trampled into the dust and the dirt. And Esther is slow. Slow. The slowness of Esther's ways is part of narrative tension as we wonder what on earth he's doing. What on earth God is doing. And then we realize, friends, we realize that in that gap, in that tomorrow gap, come back tomorrow, King. Come back tomorrow, Haman. In that tomorrow gap, chapter 5, verse 8, into that slowness, into that delay, what happens? God inserts chapter 6, verse 1. On that night. Ah, there's the reason for the tomorrow, so that there could be a, on that night, the king could not sleep. Into the slowness of time, it's as if God reaches down into the hours of time, doesn't he, and presses pause or or maybe better presses slow motion so that something now happens between today and tomorrow which means that God will not just save his people but he is now going to save Mordecai in the most delicious dramatic of ways so you see the book of Esther is God's providence in story form isn't it as the very slowness of the events comes off the pages into our lives to remind us what God is like and how he works. Brothers and sisters, this morning, I, I don't care how slow you are in real life. When it comes to suffering, 
and to problems, to, to what we want and to what we think we need. There is not one of us that is okay with slowness. Not one of us that's okay with slowness. We want it sorted yesterday, don't we? Esther says, let the slowness of events remind you. Let the slowness of events remind you what God is like. God is not in a hurry. God is never in a rush. I was thinking about this for us as a church family. We, we all know what we've been going through recently with our church building project, don't we? We, we had a, a deadline. We were hoping to get there, hoping to find an amount of money that we needed. We came very close to what we needed. And various different things conspired, conspired together to say, actually, the right thing to do here is to pause. And I can assure you, friends, a couple of days before my holiday, I was the most disappointed of the lot of us. This is not what I wanted, not what I was expecting, not, not what I was sure would happen. And after COVID and after years of waiting and delay after delay, what has God reached down from heaven and said? Delay. Wait. Pause. Uh, on the day before our holiday where we realized as a, as a team that we were going to have to wait, uh, my brother who was here, just some of you, you met him in June, he preached for us one Sunday. My, my brother Johnny was with us. And as I was pouring out my heart to him, telling about the frustrations of this, Johnny said, listen, God, God is more concerned what kind of church Trinity is going to be in that building than in you getting into the building. Who will you be once you're in there? Will you be people of faith? People who know what it means to wait. Why is Abraham called the man of faith, the father of faith? How long did he wait for God to keep his promise to him? Do you remember? From the moment God gave the promise to Abraham that I will give you a son, how long did he and Sarah wait? 25 years. 25 years. How long were the Israelites afflicted with slavery in Egypt? 430 years. How long between the old covenant prophets falling silent and John the Baptist arriving crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord? How long was that gap between those two things? 400 years. The Apostle Paul said, when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son. And we just read it and think, oh yeah, okay, that's fine, that happened. And people waited and waited and waited and waited. And God said, now the time has fully come. Oh, friends, the clock does not just tick, does it? The clock does not just tick. The clock ticks at God's command. And all things, all times, all seasons, all events, all things are in his fatherly hand. We've said it all along, haven't we, with our building project. We've used the words of uh, J. Hudson Taylor. In er every great work of God, there are three stages. First, it is impossible. Then it is difficult. Thirdly, finally, it is done. And all along we've said that middle stage, the difficult stage is, well, difficult. It's the waiting stage. It's the, the long stage. 
And we cannot read the individual providences of God, can we, as we go along from one event to the next. But one day we will. I want to encourage you this morning, friend, to look back at your life. Take the life that you have lived that God has given. Take time to look back and remember where things did not go as quickly as you wanted. But look what God was doing while you waited. Oh, let the slowness of God remind you, remind you of who he is, remind you of what he's done in your life. Number two, let the power of the powerful amuse you. Let the power of the powerful amuse you. If you're, if you're writing the points down, put, put the word power in speech marks. Let the power of the powerful amuse you. A funny thing happened on the way to the gallows. A man dies on the very gallows he had built specifically for his enemy. A man with power dies while a man with no power is honored. Do you remember what the New Testament says about the Lord Jesus and his disciples? What happened to Judas, one of his disciples? We're told that Satan entered Judas. Satan entered Judas. Why? to lead the Lord Jesus to his death. Satan plays his best card in leading the Lord of life to the cross. And in his death, what does Jesus do? He disarms the rulers and authorities and puts them to open shame. That's what Paul says in Colossians. In his death, he humiliates those who wanted to humiliate him. He used uses the very instrument of execution with which they sought to destroy him to destroy them. I want to ask you this morning, what, what do you do? What do you do in life when you see the powerful standing tall against God's people? Does it ever amuse you? Does it ever make you smile? See, it's, it's impossible by the time you get to chapter 6, those opening words of chapter 6, the king could not sleep. It's impossible to miss the writer of Esther showing us power and prestige on a colossal scale in this book. We're meant to see this king as almost invincible. Remember chapter 1, verse 1? If you put your eyes right back to the beginning of the book, and not everybody was here as we, as we began it. If you, if you look back to the very start of the book, in the days of Asherus, the Asherus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces... Amazing. India to Kush, or what we know as Ethiopia. Listen to the size of his empire. This is what's included, okay? This is what that means. He ruled over northwest India, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Iran, Pakistan, Iraq, Armenia, Syria, Lebanon, Turkey, Jordan, Azerbaijan, Israel, Egypt, Eritrea, Sudan, and Ethiopia. Immense power. He is militarily strong, financially wealthy. What does he do for 180 days? An open home to display the riches of his royal glory. And the writer says, chapter 1, verse 11, his queen won't come to the ball. Not tonight, dear. 
Uh, have you, have you see, seen the writer's point? That's why chapter 1 opens with all that focus on his wealth, his power, the strength, the grandeur. It is all setting the king up for a literary fall. Do you see it? The man who, could, who can command the armies of the world and conquer nations cannot control his own wife. Huge armies are sent into battle and his wife will not come to a party. Look, the writer is saying, as you settle back into your seats and as the story gets going, let the power of the world amuse you. Look at it in our passage this morning. The man who can do anything he wants. Do you want to know another thing he can't do? He can't sleep. He can't sleep. All this power and he is ordinary, weak, anxious. Friends, God's people in chapter 6 in the book of Esther, God's people are in exile at this time. Jerusalem is gone. It is raised to the ground. It is a thing of the past. Here are the Jews dominated by one of the world's superpowers, one of the greatest superpowers the world has ever seen. And God is saying to his people, chapter 6, verse 1, can you see the inner weakness of one of the most outwardly powerful empires there has ever been? The king cannot drop off. Esther is saying to us loud and clear in strong, defiant tones, friend, what is it going to take to stop us being impressed with worldly power? What is it going to take to stop us being impressed? We we need this drilled down into our discontented, fearful hearts, don't we, all the time? I remember many years ago on holiday, uh, I was standing in the corridor of a hotel on my holidays. I was watching uh, in the hotel, the way that hotels do, there was a plasma screen presentation that was running day and night about the prestige of one of the hotel's owners. And you just kept seeing flashed up on the screen, this man is chief exec of this company, he's on this national board, he's on this international panel. He used to play rugby for his country. This man has marshaled 40 million pounds of investment for the hotel. I remember standing looking, I think 40 million, I I just want one, please, for a church. Two would be good, one one is essential. What what would it be like to be a man commanding 40 million pounds worth of money? And I stood there looking at this screen, watching it, and one day as I was standing looking at it, one day the door opened right beside the TV screen and the very man I was looking at walked out of the door right beside me. Hi, he said. And I don't think I uttered a sound. I was just like open-mouthed speech. I said, it's actually him. It's the 40 million pound man. It's pathetic, isn't it? He's a man, an ordinary man. We, we either love it, don't we? Wealth and power and luxury and advantage and success. Or we fear it in a world superpower. Those things in the hand of a bad man are awful things. We fear all those things, evil and viciousness in the hands of powerful people. And we wonder what is going to become of us, God's people, in all our weakness and need and ongoing, seeming complete and We are totally irrelevant, aren't we, to the events of world history? We are no-shows in all the corridors of power that seem to matter most. Esther is saying to us, friends, 
That to be wealthy and powerful and prestigious in this world and in this life, while not being part of the people of God, is to be of all people the most miserable. Isn't that the message of the book? To be wealthy, powerful, prestigious, and yet not the apple of God's eye, is to be of all people the most miserable. For there is a shape and a destiny and a a purpose to world history that is actually dominated by forgotten outcasts and conquered peoples and despised minorities. Never forget who is really in control. Oh, friends, if a king on a throne, an emperor in a, a kingdom could have saved us, then a baby in a manger was a huge mistake. What, what, do you, what do we really think is going to shape world history? A promise? I will be your God and you will be my people. And because of that, I will come and find you wherever you are in all the earth and I will rescue you and bring you back to me. What do we think is going to shape world history? A promise like that or, well, take your pick, 40 million plowed into real estate in Scotland. Which is it? Oh, I hope we're smiling as we read the book of Esther. I hope one day we'll be laughing as we read it. The book of Esther is all about where we are meant to see the real story of the world. It is not in the Oval Office. It's not in Downing Street. It's not the Kremlin. The the real story of the world, friends, is a stunning reversal. It is the enemies of God setting out to eradicate God's people, themselves ending up eradicated. Look at Haman. Look at Haman with me in chapter 6. This man who has all the power at the king's right hand coming in to see the king. Verse 4. He comes in to see the king. He's going to tell him he's built the gallows for Mordecai. And with all his power and planning and skill and cunning, he cannot prepare for what happens next. Look at verse 6. So Haman came in and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? That that phrase, the king delights to honor, did you notice it comes four times? Verse 6, verse 7, verse 9, verse 11. It's as if God cannot help himself here in telling the story as he takes the schemes of the powerful and turns them back on the powerful. Oh, behold, a funny thing happened on the way to the gallows. The man meant to be honored is shamed. The man meant to be humiliated is glorified. We're meant to be smiling, aren't we? Friends, it's one thing to overcome evil. It's one thing to to conquer evil, to, to beat it, to win. But it is another thing to turn that evil back on itself. When death entered our world to ruin the world, what did God use to destroy death? Death. In the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross, he he used the very instrument of execution with which they sought to kill him to kill death itself. As Jesus died, isn't it true, a world of power stood against a weak man, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish law, Roman might, Caesar himself, and one man goes alone into the abyss of forsakenness comes out the other side alive. Who was powerful? Who was weak? Oh, let the power of the powerful always 
always amuse you. Do not envy it. Do not love it. Do not seek it. Do not want it. Let it amuse you. Look what happens to him in chapter 7, verse 9. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, The gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at his own house, 50 cubits high. The writer has to repeat the 50 cubits, don't they? Do you know where power lies? In the story that God is writing or in what you're looking at on the news, where do you think it is? Number three, Let me finish with this. Number three, this is an overall thing about our three chapters this morning. Friends, let the hiddenness of God console you. Let the hiddenness of God console you. You know by now, don't you, that God is not mentioned once in the whole book of Esther. God is not mentioned once. He is completely absent. And some people have said, of course, this means maybe Esther shouldn't even be included in the Bible. What kind of Bible book doesn't even mention God? Answer, a beautiful book, a skillful book. See, if, if I was to ask you, tell me this, which, which films that you've watched have really, really stuck in your mind over the years as you've watched them? Which ones really stand out top of the list? Is it the the predictable rom-com where guy meets girl and after a few spills along the way it all works out well in the end? Or is it the film where so much is left unsaid and it is the subtlety of the scenes that really pulls on the heartstrings, maybe even with tragedy at the end or no happy ending? The, The film where the director treats you like an adult and leaves you to sense what is happening without having to be told what is happening. Do you know the story of the man who lost his watch in the sawdust at the timber mill? Uh, The the timber mill where he worked, he lost his expensive watch, and he wanted this watch back so much, he offered a reward. And so men combed the sawdust with rakes. The men were in the building from dawn till dusk, searching the building top to bottom, but with no success. And when the men left the building, a small boy went into the mill and emerged soon after holding the watch in his hand. How on earth did you find my watch in the sawmill? The boy said, I just lay down in the sawdust and listened. Eventually I heard it ticking. See, this morning you've probably got your phone on silent. I hope you have with you. But it's still working, isn't it? Silent, but you can still get messages. Sometimes God works in silent mode. Silence is not the same thing as absence. Behind the scenes and through the ups and downs, not paraded across the sky, God is there. And Esther is God saying to us, do I I really have to always spoon feed you my presence for you to know that I'm there? Well, here's the amazing thing, isn't it, in this book? It's what we've been enjoying reading it. One seemingly insignificant event led to another. And that seemingly insignificant event led to another insignificant event. And in this mysterious chain of human actions, the promise of the covenant that God made to his people centuries before is being fulfilled. 
I will be your God and you will be my people. My people. See how the hiddenness of God works? Esther waits, chapter 5, and the gap in world history opens up for Haman to almost literally hang himself. Chapter 5, verse 9. Look at it. Haman goes out and Mordecai just happens to be sitting at the city gate. Chapter 6, verse 1, it just happens that that night the king could not sleep. Do you know, friends, when the Bible says the heart of the kings is in God's hands, it, mean, it means his eyelids as well. His eyelids are in, the, in God's hands, every part of him. Chapter 6, verse 4, at that very moment, Haman just happened to enter the court. Chapter 6, verse 14, just as they were talking, the king's eunuchs arrived. Ha, just as they were talking, right at that moment. Chapter 7, verse 8, the king just happened to come back in as it looks like Haman is assaulting Esther. Oh, there is a world of events in this world that look ordinary, don't they? But through which God is writing the greatest story the world will ever know. Some of you know the brilliant book that Francis Schaeffer wrote, uh, a lovely book called No Little People. No little people. There is no such thing as an insignificant or worthless person. I think that the, the subtitle for Esther is No Little Events. No Little Events. Friends, think about your own life. Why are you here today at this very moment in Aberdeen today? 31st of July, 2022. Why, why are you here how much of getting here did you really control or decide? Some of it, of course, you did, yes. But maybe less than you realize. No, when you look back, isn't it true that you're here because one day you met somebody over there and you didn't plan on meeting them that day and you certainly never planned in 2012 that you'd be in Aberdeen in 2022 and yet here you are. This book shows us that in the one big story in the world, the true story, the real story, the, the, the fact not fiction story, which is the story of how God makes a promise to form a people and then keeps that promise through thick and thin, in that one big story, there is not one single event in your life. Oh, I hope you know this today. I want you to know this. Not one single event in your life. 14 years ago or four days ago, that is a dropped stitch in God's tapestry of deliverance. No, God does not, he cannot, he will not make mistakes. And Esther says, and he never, ever abandons his people to the grave. Look at chapter 6, verse 13. The, the humor, the delicious irony of Haman heading towards his own downfall and look what Zeresh says to him. Oh, how she's changed her tune. If Mordecai, before, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before. It's a bit like she's saying, Oh, I know I told you to build the gallows, but I didn't realize it was for a Jew. Oh, you, oh, you, you do not touch the Jewish people, Haman. Did you not know that? Oh, you don't touch them. It's amazing, isn't it? Do you know that one day all of world history will be seen to be church history? All of 
world history will be seen to be church history. What God has done to protect his people, to deliver his promise, the past before you, the future ahead of you. Summer is a time of change, isn't it? People come, people go, people have been with us, they move on to other parts of the world. New people will come. Do you really think, friends, there is anything that has happened or could happen that will ever stop God delivering his promises to you? Esther says to us, which part of in all things God works for the good of those who love him, don't we understand? In all things. Which part of neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Esther says, which part of that do we still need to be convinced about? Do you know, I think there's nothing, nothing more cruel for us as believers to live longing for the miraculous and to miss God in the mundane. It's what happens all the time, isn't it? I want a miracle, Lord. And what does God give us? The mundane, the, the, the ordinary, the, the day-to-day crisscrossing of lives and people and conversations and circumstances that all of it is in his hands. Some people wait for the miraculous to save them from death. Other people learn that the, hid, the hiddenness of God never, ever means the absence of God. The, the strategies of God do not come in one size fits all only. No, whether we live or die, whether we gain or lose, whether we are rich or poor, come what may, Esther says, you are the apple of his eye. You are the subject of his kingdom. You are the child in his family, the possession of his spirit. And no one, no one and nothing will ever be able to snatch you out of his hand. Amen.